Apologies as I start for my pronunciation of some of the names in this little bit. So Esther, um, chapter 1, going through to chapter 2, verse 4. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa and in the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, um, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement of porphyry marble mother of pearl and other costly stones wine was served in goblets of gold each one different from the other and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality by the king's command each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished queen vashti now vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Bizthar, Harbona, Bigthar, Abagatha, Zetha and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned in anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshina, Shetha, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marzina and uh, Mimukin the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asked. She has not obeyed the command of the king Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mimurkin replied in the presence of the king and nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who had heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. They will be no end of disrespect and discord. 
Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And also, let the king give her royal position to someone else, who is better than she. Then the king's edict is proclaimed... Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mermukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in his own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal um, attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Well, friends, uh, as we kick off today, four weeks in this wonderful book of Esther... Uh, It's a book that has been brilliantly crafted to tell such an amazing story for us. But it is written from such a very different time and place that, well, we're going to miss heaps of what's going on if we don't get some of the context. And even the opening words uh, that we read there make it clear. And when it begins saying this is what happened during the time of King Xerxes, well, it's going to be helpful to know what was the time of King Xerxes, right? So we're actually going to spend some time getting into the world of Esther to understand some more of what God is saying to us in this. And I'm going to give us a bit of a crash course in Bible history, not because you need to be an expert in it, but because it helps us to hear what God is saying to us through His Word. So the outline for us this morning has got three points. First, we need to spend some time understanding when and where we're talking about, but then we're going to look at what we've seen this morning from chapter 1, the visible king in contrast with the hidden God, and then work through how this relates to our own time. So, when and where are we actually talking about? This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, is our opening line. And from these words and connections between the Bible and archaeology, we can be quite confident that the year is 483 BC. And King Xerxes, he ruled over the mighty Persian Empire. In the scriptures we read that it was taken from India right over there on the east through to Kush, what we know as modern-day Egypt, and it stretched right up into Europe as well. It was a massive empire that totally dominated this part of the world. Now, I also think it's helpful to put this into some kind of basic timeline of biblical history. So we're going to join the dots from where we were just two weeks ago in Genesis, right, through to Esther. We've just been reading about God's people as they journeyed through to Egypt, uh, with Joseph taking them there. Well, the book of Exodus tells us that they spent just over 400 years in Egypt before Moses led them through the wilderness to the land that God had promised to Abraham. There they were, they were led by Joshua and the judges 
and they lived in the land and things were okay, but because of their persistent disobedience, they never fully experienced God's blessing. And then when they looked around at all the nations around them, saw they had human kings, they decided, well, God's not enough, we want our own human king. God was gracious to warn them just how terrible that could be. But then he actually was kind to give them uh, King David and make a promise that one from his descendants would reign over his people forever and be the means of God's blessing, not only to his people, but to the whole world. And God's people, however, we're all a stiff-necked bunch, right? They continued in their rebellion and just as God warned them through his prophets, well, so they were carried off into exile. Our first... The nation of Assyria was the local superpower and they wiped out the northern half of Israel. And then when his people still refused to repent, God sent the new superpower of Babylon to finish the job. Babylon wiped out all of the infrastructure of the nation. It destroyed the capital city of Jerusalem, totally trashing the temple there, which was so symbolic of God's presence with his people and his his rule over his people. And then the Babylonians took most of God's people off to their home capital city of Babylon as slaves. But then, just as if Babylon wasn't bad enough, they were then superseded by the new superpower of the mighty Persian Empire. So by the time we get to Esther's day, it feels a very long time since God's promises were made to Abraham. It's around a thousand years. And the promised land... That seems a very long way away, a world away for your average citizen in the day before cars and trains and planes. And I think to help us really feel the sense of despair that this book opens with for God's people. You know, the Babylonian Empire, if you've read much of the Bible, you'll know it it seemed totally dominant, terrifying. But that's it in grey. It's just dwarfed by the might of the Persian Empire. And the little red star, which is, you know, you can just catch it there in the middle of the screen, Susa, the capital city, right in the middle. If you're in Susa, as all of the action of Esther is based, it doesn't matter which direction you look. It seems that King Xerxes rules the whole world. And this is all to make the point that during the time of King Xerxes, God's people, they've been scattered throughout this mighty empire for over a hundred years since they were taken into exile. Generations of God's children have been born into cultures and places that shape their identity and constantly challenged any sense of being God's people. It seems that every area of life, from how they thought about sexuality to their job to property, even the way that justice was upheld, everything was up for grabs, everything was done differently. And the people are kind of constantly being torn between what it is to live in the midst of the Persian Empire and yet to maintain their identity as God's people, so far from a home that most of them had never seen. It would have been very easy to wonder where God was in it all. So, I don't think it's any accident that Esther is one of only two books in the whole Bible. There's a pop quiz for you afterwards. You can come and tell me if you know what the other one is. Two books in the whole Bible that don't even mention God. I wonder if you noticed that in what we just read. Lots of very tricky names. Thank you very much, Mandy. God's name wasn't one of them. 
doesn't even write a mention. And actually, for the whole book, as we continue on, there are more tricky names, but God doesn't write a mention. He seems invisible. And I don't think that's an accident. It's part of the beautiful crafting of this story because Esther poses a really important question for for everyone that has read it since that day through to us now. What does it mean to trust in the invisible God? So for us to really feel the weight of this, I think it's helpful to see that living in Susa under the rule of Xerxes would have seemed like all of God's promises had just faded away. To help us to get our heads around that, I think there are three really neat ways of kind of gathering up the collective promises that God had made. He promised that his people would live in his place under his rule. That's kind of a helpful summary statement. Well, what of, what of life in Susa under Xerxes? God's people? They're scattered, they're fearful, they're vulnerable, constantly struggling to maintain a sense of their identity as God's people. God's place, back in Jerusalem, it's, it's in ruins. It's virtually empty. There are a handful of Jewish people who went home under Xerxes' grandfather, King Cyrus, but they'd only made a really feeble attempt to rebuild and there was oppression and opposition all around them. And God's rule? Well, that was almost impossible to see. You remember God had promised a king in the line of David. None of them had sat on the throne for a couple of generations. Even the scriptures and the whole, the whole system of sacrifices and, and the priests, that had fallen into disarray and the scriptures are gathering dust. This is the world of the book of Esther. And yet I wonder if you can start to see how, how much of that sounds so similar to us in the, if you want to put it this way, the empire of the world today. Where is God in it all? He can just seem so invisible. Has he taken his hands off the wheel? How do you trust in an invisible God? And as the story of Esther moves forward, well, that question gets even more challenging because, as we just read, we're confronted by the visible king. The visible king in such a contrast to the hidden God. I mean, we've read through chapter 1, and I think if there's one thing that we're meant to notice, it's the grandeur of Xerxes king of Persia but it's not actually a good thing meant to see that his grandeur is just over the top it's too much it's actually really twisted and as I think we'll see it's kind of foolish to the point of being funny let me show you you see the scene opens in verse 3 in the third year of the reign of King Xerxes what does a king do when he gets bored with his massive superpower he puts on a six-month expo a massive brag fest of just how good he is And he invites all of the important people and we read in verse 5 that at the end of the six months, tops it off with a week-long banquet. Did you notice how we got all of this kind of superfluous details of of all of the bling? We seem to get all of the details so we can picture just how excessive it is, even down to the extravagant decorations, the massive feast. And right there in verse 7, just this crazy idea that everyone gets their own personalised gold cup to drink their wine from. It's like, here's your, here's your, your, your souvenir to take home with you. But it's actually pretty ugly. After all, it doesn't take a lot of imagination for any of us that have been at a university O-week to kind of picture what an open bar for a whole week would look like. It'd be carnage. It'd be messy. And then at the height of all of this festivity in verse 10 and 11, 
Xerxes orders his wife, Queen Vashti, to come out on display. I think we should squirm, because even his wife has become a tool for his own ego. She's not there because he enjoys her company, or so that she can enjoy the party, but so that he can put her on display, so that he can say to all of his mates, see this beautiful creature? She's mine, not yours. It's horrible. But I actually think that at this point, um, we're actually meant to see how foolish all of this is too. This is one of the features as we work our way through Esther. If ever you feel inclined to laugh out loud as it's being read, feel free to, because I think it's kind of a dark comedy. You're meant to chuckle, if not kind of laugh out loud, at a number of points. And did you notice just how foolish Xerxes seems in his deep insecurity? So, think about it. First, Xerxes... He's the guy that thinks he can order his wife around. He looks pretty foolish that uh, he can, you know, all of his fun is spoiled when she says one word. No. No, she will not come out and be paraded around. So the man who rules the largest empire in the whole world can't even control his wife. Like, that's his perspective, not mine, but... You know, second, Xerxes, he looks pretty foolish when he can't sort out his own marital conflict in conversation with his wife. What does he have to do? This man of great power... Oh, he has to call on his trusted advisors to sort this out. And even then, he's looking pretty foolish when he's pretty much shaking in his boots, freaking out that his own domestic issues, that's going to trigger chaos in this empire, must have been a very fragile empire. I think it's meant to be laughable. A picture of ego and power and deep insecurity. The king is on view with all his excess with all his ego, with all his foolishness. And in the midst of it all, God remains hidden. And then at the start of chapter 2, it actually starts to get really twisted. This is not a G-rated story. Disney should never make this because they won't be able to do it right. Because we read that in his insecurity and his excess... Xerxes decides to search for the most beautiful women in all of the empire. But as if a sort of a beauty contest doesn't objectify women enough, this is actually a sex contest in which he will decide who pleases him the most in bed. And friends, this is the visible king. It's a picture of excess and perversion and, and foolishness. It's a king living in total disregard for God. He doesn't even write a mention. And this is the king who seems to rule the world. And we need to feel the weight of that. It's a, it's a kind of low mood to start this book in, but we need to feel the weight of it because this is the context in which God's people live. We haven't met any of them yet, but we're about to. If you've got your Bibles with you, open up to Esther chapter 2. I'm going to read just a, a couple more paragraphs on from where we got up to so that we can meet. Um, the two central characters of this story. Um, So I'm reading from Esther chapter 2, verse 5. Actually, Cherubim, can you keep um, the Bible rolling because I won't keep up if I'm trying to have my eyes in too many places at once. But reading from verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Kish who'd been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken with Jehoiachin, the king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, 
whom he'd brought up because she had neither father nor mother. Uh, This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. All right, so here we meet Esther and her older cousin Mordecai. They live right there in the heart of Xerxes' reign in the, in the city of Susa. And it's, it's not actually a happy picture. In verse 5 and 6, we were reminded they are a long way from home because Mordecai is in Susa, but that's not his home. His family were amongst those who were taken captive and enslaved. But on top of this, we're also told that Mordecai comes from the tribe of Benjamin and the clan of Kish. That's a really important detail just to flag and it'll come up later in the story because that is the same clan as Israel's first king. King Saul came from the clan of Kish. So Mordecai is a man of proud lineage. He's bound up in the promises of God. And yet here he is exiled. He's far from home. And then in verse 7, we meet Mordecai's cousin Hadassah. And what a sad story she has. Orphans by the death of her parents, now taken into the care of her older cousin. She is a child torn between two cultures, with two names reflecting the tension, right? A Jewish name is Hadassah. But here in Susa, she goes by the Persian name, Esther. It's, it's, it's a picture of this girl stuck between identities. Two names, but kind of no real home. And we see that these two, these two people, they're connected into the ugly world of Xerxes because Esther, she's beautiful. And she's one of the women taken for the king's pleasure. To call it as it is... Esther is caught up in the systematic kidnap and rape of young women by the most powerful man on the planet. It's a bleak picture. But in that, we're going to see that the book of Esther is a wonderfully honest, really gritty, challenging description of the world as it is. And God is silent. He seems so invisible that he's not even named And so there should be all sorts of questions rolling. Where is he? What's happened to his promises? For generations, his people have waited. So has he forgotten them? Well, friends, with that in mind, as as we dive into this book, I just want to flag some of the connections with our times today. Today's not the day when I'm going to be cracking all sorts of jokes and wisecracks. It's, It's a day, actually, where we're reminded of the depth of the messiness of this world that we live in where God's promises can seem very distant and his people can seem very vulnerable. I think we too are torn between cultures in the world but not of it, struggling for identity, longing for Jesus to return to make things new. But I actually think there's amongst us, it's it's pretty common that we might even find that mention of that that Christians genuinely believe that Jesus is going to return, that, that that can actually that can be quite jarring. That could even sound a little sort of a fairy tale wish. Like, come on, it's been 2,000 years and we're still waiting. 
But I think as we jump into Esther, it's so helpful for us to see that God's people, they have always been called to walk by faith in an invisible God. To know the promises of God and to trust them, even when they seem so far off, they seem to have been forgotten. Hey Matt, uh, recently, just a couple of weeks ago, as we wrapped up Genesis, took us to chapter 8 of of Romans chapter 8, to reflect on God's promises to us in Jesus. And I've pulled a couple of verses from that for us because they are just such a a helpful reminder. You know, Romans chapter 8 paints us this really vivid picture of what it means to live by faith in the messiness of this world. It describes us as, together with all of creation, groaning like a woman in labour. There's a vivid image. Describes the wait for Jesus to return as like like the the painful wait of labour. It's hard going. But you know that there's going to be new life at the end of it. And Romans chapter 8 is really helpful in acknowledging that God knows that it's tough to wait. God is real about that because he knows what it means to trust in an invisible God. It's a life lived hoping for things unseen. And this is how that idea is summed up. In this hope we were saved, this hope that Jesus would return. But, but hope that is seen, that's no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. You see, Romans chapter 8 is a wonderful chapter to read and reflect on because it is all about God's people trusting in His promises while we wait. It opens with the wonderful promise that in Christ our sins are forgiven. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It finishes that come what may, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. You see, running all the way through it, that God promises that Jesus is the Lord of history who will finish what he started. And God knows we groan. God knows we live in the real world, a world like Esther's world with with suffering and frustration, a world of sin and its consequences and broken relationship. And God knows that we live in the real world as real people. He doesn't try and sugarcoat that either. People with frail bodies, people with flawed characters and sinful hearts. And so as we start to dig into the book of Esther, I've got up on screen that I think God gives us two big ideas to consider and a a really essential point of application. The first big idea is that as I've read Esther, I find it a challenge to repent. I think we need to repent of this kind of arrogant assumption that somehow it's harder for us to trust in God's promises than it was for people that went before us. You know, it's, oh, it's, been, it's harder to believe God's promises in the 21st century than it was before. It's been extra time, we have science, we, you know, whatever it might be. But actually, Esther is just a wonderful reminder that it's, God's people have always been called to trust, even when God seems invisible and when trusting Him means we're going against the flow. I think we kind of we forget at times that God's people have always been in the minority, living in the middle of, cult, of a culture that is so different to the way that God calls us to live. So I think that should be our first challenge right here in chapter 1, challenge to repent of a comfortable Christianity that kind of squirms when we realise that we're at odds with the world around us. But I think the second big idea is actually, there's a wonderful reason for hope here in Esther in the midst of all of the darkness the the gritty reality of it because in Esther we are reminded that God knows that his people 
they're scattered and they're vulnerable, that, that they groan under the weight of sin in us and around us. And in the book of Esther, God is always there in the background. He's never up front, visible, obvious, he's not even named. But as we will see, he is constantly at work. I think that actually gives us great reason for hope, knowing that, that even when God's promises seem forgotten, when his rule seems invisible, that he remains God. He is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. He remains God who reigns over all people and through all time. He is God who is bringing his plans to pass, his promises to their fulfilment. And so those two big ideas, I think, are summed up in a very simple take-home for us. You need to know God's promises if you're going to live by faith in God's promises. We need to know what God has promised if we're then going to be able to live by faith in them. It's such a simple idea that um, our kids sing a wonderful you know, little kids song that I think just drills this home so well. Promises, promises, God keeps his promises, he has made in his book. Promises, promises, to know God's promises. Open the Bible and look. It's simple, right? And you're sitting there, right? Yeah, classic pastor's point of application, Simon. Read your Bible more. <laughs> Saw that coming. But friends, I finish on this note as we dive into Esther because this is real. I don't know how many people... I have counselled and sat alongside and spoken with and encouraged in their, in their grief or their confusion, in their frustration, in their sin because they don't know what God has promised and what he has not. I think for so many people at points that there, are, there are frustrations and disappointments because God hasn't lived up to their expectations when in fact those expectations, they weren't based on his promises but rather on human desire. I think at times we can be scared and disoriented because God seems to have abandoned us, to have gone silent, when actually the very circumstance that we're in, the experience that we're having, might actually be something that, that God has been very clear that He's promised will come and yet in that, He has promised that He is with us always. He has promised that He uses all things to, to make His children more like His Son. He's promised that He's working all things to His great end with a sovereign hand that is constantly at work behind the scenes. It might be unseen, but that doesn't make it less real. And the book of Esther has this wonderful honesty about the messy, sinful, fallen world we live in and our messy, sinful, fallen hearts. The book of Esther really does challenge us to know God's promises and to cling to them tight. See, Esther is really about how the, the empire of the world, whichever empire it might be at the time, it can look pretty glamorous, full of bling, massive parties in which the strong man rules. And God can seem very hidden in comparison. But it also points us to that hidden God and his promises, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. We're going to have some fun over the next couple of weeks seeing how Esther is this wonderful 
glorious signpost pointing forward to Jesus to come. So with that in mind, I do want to finish with some encouragement. Um, Taken from a very different part of the Bible, much later in the Bible, the book of Hebrews. It was written to Christians struggling to persevere, struggling to trust in God's promises when even just a generation after Jesus' resurrection, they were facing hardship and beginning to doubt. Already it was tough to hold firm to his promises. And so this is how, this is how the book of Hebrews begins, written to people like us who need to trust God's promises and their ultimate fulfilment in the Lord Jesus. We read that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, such as Esther. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, who he appointed as heir over all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And because the writer knows that when we know Jesus, when we read of him through his word, well, then we know that God's promises can be trusted, even in the waiting. And so towards the end of the book, we have this wonderful encouragement. Knowing Jesus in all his glory, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. So let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father who has patiently waited these 2,000 years since Jesus walked the earth, waiting for your people to turn to you in faith. Our loving Heavenly Father, who quietly works in the background, so often seeming hidden. We thank you that you remain constantly at work. We thank you that you remain the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. We thank you that you show us that your promises can be trusted. And we thank you for Jesus, in whom we have our hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.